Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Latha Kathir Kamathambi. Latha is the care manager at Blue Crystal Care Agency, a specialised care provider based in Harrow, North West London. Latha, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you very much, Scott. Your pleasure. It's a real pleasure having you on the air with us. Now, um, the purpose of this podcast is to understand your take on leadership as a whole. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is something that's really been put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the context of COVID-19 and different business leaders, different organisations having to feel their way through this unprecedented crisis. So for somebody working on the front line, such as yourself, just how difficult has it been navigating the last few weeks and months because I can imagine the challenges have been tremendous um, it has been um, obviously um, you know my duty of care is, is to my staff as well as my clients um, and luckily we had actually ordered our PPE um, two weeks prior to lockdown um, so we were actually prepared um, and, and that's how we kind of managed it and uh, you know we have a lot of private clients living in their own homes um, so when the lockdown came on board, we basically said, uh, right, the staff will be in lockdown with the clients. So there will be no uh, staff change because we couldn't take the risk. Mm. It must have been an incredibly difficult time for them, certainly, um, of course, having to do that. And given the renewed focus on sort of mental health and well-being during this time, how yeah. has it been from your point of view in terms of looking at how they've applied themselves to this? Because we've heard some incredible stories of people on the front line who've gone above and beyond to keep vital services being provided. And that's a real example of that. I have actually been maintaining a regular contact with my staff and also visiting my staff outside the house of clients to make sure that they are okay and you know that their their, their well-being is, is is kept uh, a top priority as well. Um, and the people that we serve in the community where we do one-hour calls, we have actually been um, looking after them very well as well by asking the family to keep away so that they don't actually bring any of the virus into the homes that we look, uh, the clients that we're looking after. And I can imagine that a lot of people are, during this time have been looking to you as care manager for just a little bit of much needed reassurance as well. And given the great yeah. amount of uncertainty that's out there, that can sometimes be quite difficult, can't it, keeping the communication channels open? It can be, but I think, you know, we, we've been very fortunate with the families. Um, they have been very, very um, understanding in terms of mm. the decisions that I have made to make sure that the staff and the clients are, are have been looked after very well. Um, so things like um, FaceTime and WhatsApp have been used in order to keep that communication going between the families of my clients as well as of my staff as well because they've had to sacrifice two weeks of not seeing their families myself. Mm. So it's not just the clients. Mm, that's exactly it. And during this time as well, we've seen a great deal of debate um raging over the government's handling of the crisis, particularly with regard to clarity of guidance. And that's an important element of leadership as a whole, of course, clarity and transparency. Given that you've been working on the front line pretty much from the beginning of the uh, the pandemic and indeed before that, of course, um, have you been satisfied that you've always been clear of what's been expected of you and continue to be so? No, I don't think the government, uh, unfortunately, um, knew what was happening 
I think they weren't clear. So I actually took upon myself to make that decision to keep my staff and my clients safe. Um, for example, when the when the lockdown came into effect, we were told originally that we would be getting PPE from the NHS as well as from the council. We didn't get it. We all, I mean, the providers, we had to spend our own money. We spent um, £6,000, £7,000 because the prices of PPE had tripled because the demand was so mm-hmm. high. And it was only, I think, the fourth week of the lockdown, that's when... We were getting supplies from the council and from, um, from from the government, by which time we'd already spent our money. Mm, it's staggering, isn't it, just how a situation such as that can come about. And it's forced the hand of not only frontline um, providers such as yourselves, but also businesses all over the country to be able to be proactive as well as reactive because people have had to essentially take it upon themselves to get hold of PPE in your case. They've had to have plans in place. But when guidance and circumstances can change so suddenly, it's tested the ability of many to be able to react to that and take measured decisions um, as well. Um, If we sort of take that sort of proactive versus reactive away from this current situation for a second, Letha, I'd like to ask, um, as a business leader in an everyday context would you describe yourself as someone who's proactive as and when difficulties arise in getting on top of them as soon as possible or do you like to sort of sit back a little bit take stock of what's happening see how things develop and then take action from that stage i think my staff will 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 be able to tell you i'm very proactive Mm. so we don't we i'm not one to take take things lightly um whatever whenever there is uh, any kind of situation i'm on it straight away Mm, that's um, incredibly um, interesting uh, for sure because the reason why I asked that question is because of the debate over the uh, the lockdown timing, of course, proactive versus reactive there. Of course, we saw um, in contrast with um, Italy who began their lockdown as early as the 9th of March. We didn't yep. follow suit until the 23rd when, of course, matters had developed a little bit further despite having plans in place. So I suppose it's fair to say there was a little bit more of a kind of laissez-faire attitude um, there in our approach, would you say? I think because the, the lockdown, you know, as you said, it should have happened on the 9th. That's why I ordered the PPE and we were in stock of it. Whereas I know after the lockdown, some of my um, friends in, in um, domiciliary, uh, they couldn't get it and they were struggling. They were literally struggling. And if we think about the um, the future as well under the uh, the new normal that everybody's uh, talking about, um, are you clear in that you pretty much know the way forward now? Has there been any further clarity on that side of things? For for myself and my staff, we're still carrying on as if there is a lockdown. We we've not relaxed the the, the way that we are working because we know for sure. Um, and working with the COVID clinic doctors, we know for sure that we are going to have another peak July August. So therefore, you know, our guards aren't down. Our guards are still full up and, you know, we still have ample uh, amount of um, PPE. And in the background, of course, there's been a real debate about working practices that's come about as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, as a lot of people have moved more toward the remote side of working where possible. And if we focus on that for a second, Latha, um, what role do you think that sort of office environment is going to play in the future of work, both from your own point of view and also in the wider world? I think, obviously, in our line of work, we can't do that because, Mm. because obviously, we have to service the community. But I think we would actually expect more support to for us to maintain that support to the community. Um, and I think a lot of people are going to be working from home, one, for safety reasons, and two, 
I think people, a lot more people are productive working from home as opposed to wasting time traveling into work and their day, days are longer because of the traveling back and they're tired. I think that uh, relates to sustainability for sure. That's something that's really come onto the uh, the discussion agenda uh, much more in recent weeks because of the positive impacts that it's had on the environment with people cutting down on travelling um, as a result of this. Um, and as we think about what the new normal may well hold in the long term, if we think about maybe the next 12 to 18 months, just for a moment, Latha, before we wrap things up on the programme today, I'm interested to understand what you envision for yourself and for Blue Crystal over the next year and what you really hope to achieve as we get to grips with the new normal the challenges that that's going to bring? I think obviously this virus is not going to go away um, tomorrow. It's going to be around for quite some time. I would personally, and I think my colleagues also would, would agree that for care agencies like ourselves servicing the community, we would want um, testing uh, in terms of that we actually have testing equipment on premises that we can actually test our staff before they go out to our clients. We don't have that facility. You have it in the care homes, but we don't have it for care agencies. Mm. And if we wanted to get tested, we'd have to go into a, a testing centre, which is not practical. Mm, there are real so issues forward, with access there, In order yeah. to, to maintain safety for the client and for the staff, and for it not to spread, it's the only way you can do this. It was raised, of course, in uh, Prime Minister's questions today by opposition leader Sakia Starmer, the need for more widespread testing. Um, and um, the, the, what was also scrutinised in the uh, the chamber uh, today um, was um, the absence of the NHS contact tracing app as well, which is still yet to, yep. uh, to be developed as part of uh, that system. Um, is that something that you're hoping will essentially come into place in the, uh, the coming weeks? The government seemed to be um, dragging their feet on, on as far as controlling this, the situation. They should have put things in place. I mean, initially we were told that it was going to come out in middle of May, this, this testing app, and mm. now we've gone 20 steps backwards. You know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. It's going to be interesting uh, to see exactly what happens in the weeks and uh, months to uh, come on that front, uh, for sure, as to whether we do see um, that system really being ramped up in that sense um it's a shame we're just about out of time lather um, i'm sure we could discuss um, these issues um, all afternoon otherwise but i have to say i mean it's been a real pleasure and also an incredibly insightful experience hearing you air these issues with us today and you know i actually think it would be fantastic to have you back on the program in future just to discuss exactly what has changed in the time between because it is one thing speculating on what might happen and what needs to happen but it's a completely different thing of course looking back and analyzing exactly what did occur Yes, I'll be more than happy to come back and, and give you an update of how situations have changed, if at all, really, mm. from the government's point of view. Hopefully so, and let's hope there's some better news to share in the context of Blue Crystal Care Agency as well. And most importantly, Lether, until we do touch base in future, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on, because we are most definitely not out of the woods with this yet, as we certainly know. No, we're not. Thank you very much for your time and give me the opportunity. That was Latha Kathia Kamathambi speaking, care manager at Blue Crystal Care Agency. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August of 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. 
and I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, 
but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And of course, um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and. Um, and the U.S., and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide 
and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue, 
all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticise the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, 
the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 
2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. 
but I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer, and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister, and all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies 
but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.